Hello, thank you for joining us again as we consider Paul's epistle to the church in Colossae. We're in Colossians chapter 3 today, and if you'd read along with me, please, Colossians 3, the first four verses. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray together. God in heaven, our Lord and our Savior, we thank you for the things Paul has written here that you inspired him to write, that they're true for these believers thousands of years ago, and they're true for us today. Help us to obey them, to cherish them, to see you through them. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul has written this letter to these believers in Colossae. He loves them, even though he's never met them. He loves them in the Lord. He's concerned about them. And for the first part of this letter, it's been very doctrinal, a lot of knowledge, things to be gained. Now he turns the corner and starts to say, here's how you live it. So they have to learn it and they have to live it. Um, he's been talking about who Jesus is, so that he is our creator, Everything was made by him. Everything was made for him. He's the head of all things. He's the head of the church. Paul has talked about that we're completely saved in Christ. We're completely forgiven in Christ. And we are to live in him, and uh, complete in him and not in ourselves and what we're doing. And let me give you four little hooks to think about here. They'll undergird these truths. Uh, we have been transplanted to a new kingdom, Paul says in this letter. We've been transplanted from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. We've been transformed into a new person. Uh, one who, the man or woman and child that we once were no longer exists. So we're transplanted, we're transformed, and then we're gonna be transported into a new existence. Heaven awaits us. And this is all because our sins have been transferred to Christ. So let me just say those things again. We've been transplanted to a new kingdom. We've been transformed into a new person. We've been transported into a new existence. We will be someday because our sins were transferred to Christ. Instead of us paying the penalty for our own sins and receiving the judgment that we deserve, Christ did it on our behalf. And so because those things are true, Paul writes these things in the first four verses. Look at chapter 3 of Colossians, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ. So he gives them a reminder. And the word if here really could be translated since, because. He's talking to Jesus' followers who are born again. He's already confirmed that. You were raised with Christ. He's reminded them of who they are, who we find our identity in. We're no longer identified with the first Adam, that brings death, decay, and destruction. We're now identified with the second Adam, God's son. We have newness of life. If then you are raised with Christ, that's who we are. When you think of who you are and how you live, how do you, how do you identify yourself? As someone who has died with Christ and risen again, 
as Romans chapter 6 talks about, that's who we are. So because these things are true about you, if then you are raised with Christ, do something. Now let me just pause for a second. It costs us absolutely nothing. It costs us absolutely nothing to be born again, to be saved, to be redeemed, to go to heaven, to be forgiven to have newness of life, to be raised with Christ, costs us nothing. It's all a free gift. Our salvation is a gift by God through faith because of his grace to keep us from boasting about it and because we're not qualified to do anything about it. So let me say this one more time. It costs us absolutely nothing to be saved, but it will cost us absolutely everything to live like we're saved costs us nothing to be saved it costs us everything to live like we're saved and that's what Paul is going to talk about here if then you were raised with Christ seek those things which are above so first of all it gives us a reminder of who we are then he gives us a responsibility about what we're supposed to be doing all of our life before we we're transplanted and transformed we were building our kingdoms here on this planet. Our lives were about our own accomplishments, our own treasure system. What was important to us, some of them were good, some of them were, were bad, but it was always about what we wanted or what we thought was best for us because we were our own king. We were, we were our own God. We're supposed to be seeking something else. Now this idea of seeking doesn't mean like you just, oh, there it is, it's intense. It's intentional, it's consistent, and it means to continually do it. It, should, it could be translated, continually seeking those things which are above. Have you ever looked for the remote control for the TV? We do it all the time at our house. You're looking under the couch, you're looking on top of the bookshelf, looking behind the TV, all those places where it could be. You keep looking and looking and looking until you find it. That's the idea here. Continue searching and seeking for it until we're there. Seek those things which are above. What things are above? Jesus, what's important to him, his kingdom, his worldview, his values, himself. Jesus is there. We're to continually be seeking those things which are above where Christ is. You see, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And if we're following him, our kingdom that we're a part of should not be a part of this world. He said, seek first the kingdom of God. Then God will take care of the other things. What am I seeking first? Well, what's the first thing I do in the morning? What's the last thing I do at night? What do I do in between? How do I make decisions? How do I respond? All of it is connected to the kingdom I'm seeking, my own or God's kingdom. Jesus commanded it. He said, seek my kingdom first. Jesus prayed for it. When he was teaching us how to pray, he said, my Father, our Father in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done. Those are attitudes of submitting to authority. Kingdoms and kings are about following the one who is in charge. So Jesus commanded we seek it. He prayed that it would arrive, 
and he provided the means for us to be a part of that kingdom. And so we're to seek after it. Intentional effort with time, purpose. And those things which are connected to him. Knowing him, knowing what he values. So Paul begins here, he says, if then you were raised with Christ. So first of all, let's just examine ourselves. Have we been raised with Christ? Has there been a point in our life where we, we were identified with his death? that we died to self, we trusted in the work of Christ's death, and we, trans we allowed God to transfer our sin onto him, and then we're identified with his resurrection and his new life. Have we ever come to Christ in faith and repentance to become part of his kingdom? If not, the rest of this passage doesn't relate to you. But if it does, Paul is reminding these believers to do something. It's interesting, God doesn't just zap us He's writing and telling us, yeah, these guys were already saved, but here's what you're supposed to be doing. It costs you nothing to be saved, but it costs you everything to live like you're saved. And where he reminds us and he gives us this responsibility to seek it. Now, let's continue in our text. He says, it's where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. This is a place of authority and a place of resources. God said that he will supply everything we need according to the riches of Christ Jesus. So Paul reminds us, gives us a responsibility, and then he gives us the resource where these things are going to be able to be accomplished. Where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. We're to set our eyes on Jesus. We're to receive what he gives us. We're to remember that we're complete in him. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He is our high priest, continually making intercessory intercession for us. I want to look at a passage in the Old Testament uh, where David is relating to his God, our God. This is in 2 Samuel, and you're welcome to turn there or listen with me. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 22. David records this about his relationship with God. I'm going to read 2 Samuel 22, verses 29 to 35. Listen to how he thinks about his God. 2 Samuel 22, verse 29. For you are my lamp, O Lord. What do lamps do? Illuminate. Have you ever tried walking in complete darkness? God is illuminating how we should go. For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. And what a beautiful picture of salvation as we think about being transplanted out of the kingdom of darkness is because Jesus is the light of the world. Again, in 2 Samuel, you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness, for by you I can run against a troop. Now remember, David was a man of war, a man of battle and conflict. He's saying, with God, I can fight a whole troop. By you, I can run against a troop. By my God, I can leap over a wall. Sounds impossible to man. Leaping over walls, one against many. Second Samuel, verse 30, uh, 29, Second Samuel 22, verse 31. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. 
He is a shield to all who trust in him. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield. Notice the relationship to those who trust in him. Again, I'm thinking of what Paul said about living by faith, behind the shield of faith. If you're not behind the shield, how effective is the shield? If you're not living by faith, if you're not trusting in him, the shield is inoperative. inoperative. Verse 32, For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Now, here, let's get back to, again, thinking about this resource of Christ who is sitting at the right hand of this God, who is God himself. 2 Samuel 22, verse 33. God is my strength and power, and he makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. He sets me on my high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. I've never really been too skilled with archery and archery or with bows, but uh, they're normally made out of wood. One that's made out of bronze, how much strength would it take to bend that bow? Well, David is saying that God gives him the strength to do what is impossible for men to do. And so as we come back here, as we're seeking those things which are above, we're like Abraham looking for a kingdom that is not on this earth. It, it's impossible, humanly speaking. Remember, it costs us nothing to be saved, but it costs us everything to live like we're saved. And humanly speaking, it is impossible to do. So God must give us the strength to do it. That way he's glorified for doing it. Are you trying to live the Christian life without Christ? It's impossible and it's extremely discouraging. It's narrow, it's difficult, and few, but Paul says we can do it through him. And so he says this, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Now, back in Colossians 2, so we're, we're to seek, but remember the remote control I was talking about a minute ago, you're looking around for it, looking around for it, and you, and you find it, and you, you turn the TV on to the show you want to watch. Now, I, I kind of enjoy channel surfing. I like going station to station to station, three minutes of one, three minutes of the next one. I, I enjoy that. But what's happening here in this text is just the opposite of that. Seek the kingdom of God and then set your mind on things above. It's like you take the remote control, you put it on the station, and you set it down, and you never change the channel again. Set your mind on things above. Leave them there. You notice what Paul is talking about here? It's our thoughts what we're thinking. As a matter of fact, he says it like this in Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Again, costs you nothing to be saved, costs us everything to live like it. Then he says in verse two, do not be conformed to this world. Don't set your mind on things of this world. Don't let the world conform you so you look like the world, you think like the world, you act like the world, you respond to the world. You love the world, but you're not of the world. But we're to be transformed, changed, go through a metamorphosis by the renewing of your mind. So you're seeking these things 
then you set your mind on things above. So this, this, this process, as I think and live my life, these ideas come into my mind. They're ungodly. They're not coming from God's word. They're not pleasing to him. I immediately move off of them. I don't allow my mind to be anywhere but set on Christ. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We look at the things which are not seen. We look at the things which are not seen. That sounds impossible. But he says, we look at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. It seems like a paradox, and it is. That's why it's foolishness to those who don't believe. We're living for a kingdom that we can't see. We're living for blessings we don't always experience right here, and ultimately, they're not until we get to heaven. We're worshiping a Savior that we've never met personally and face-to-face, but we seek him. We're transformed by the renewing of our mind, not on things on the earth. This is a love letter from God because he knows something about the things on the earth. Allow me to read to you from 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, we read this. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You see, you haven't been identified with Christ and his work. He says this, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So Paul is reminding us that the things in this world at the very best are temporary. And Jesus, of course, and Matthew said, what is a profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? So we have to continually live out the reality of who we are. We're dead to this world, alive to Christ and his world. And it's shown in our priorities and our thoughts that's our resource, is actually Christ himself gives us the ability to do it. He reminds us of who we are. He gives us the responsibility of seeking and setting. He tells us the resource is Christ. Why do we do it? Why do we do it? Look at verse 3 of Colossians 3. When Christ, who is our life, appears, you see, Christ is our life. I am a new creation. I'm going to break this verse down in two parts. I am in Christ. I'm a new creation. I'm dead to what came before me. When Christ, who is our life, that's why I do these things. Why do I root for the Browns? Because I'm a Browns fan. That's what I do because of who I am. Paul does what he does because of who he is. He's in Christ. Why do I do these things? When Christ, who is our life, is Jesus my life? Is Jesus my life? Here's what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. And he's evaluating his life before Christ and his life after Christ. Before he's a Jesus follower, from the world standpoint, Paul was at the top of the game. He had recognition from his peers professionally. He was excellent. He had been trained by the best teachers. Listen to what he says in the context of his Judaism and how he's living. 
uh, his life towards God in that regard. Philippians chapter 3. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And he lists these things. He could brag about circumcised the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning a law of Pharisee. That means uh, set apart from all things that shouldn't be touched. Concerning zeal, I was persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, the things that are valuable to me, the things that are my treasures to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. It cost me nothing to be saved. It cost me everything to live like I'm saved. These I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss. For the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. That's the attitude here. I'm in Christ. For me to live is Christ. I've been buried with him. I've been resurrected with him. I've been given new life in him. I'm not who I was before Paul is saying. That man is dead. He reminds them of who they are. He gives them the responsibility of what they should do. He gives them the resource of where to set their eyes. He tells them why to do it. They're in Christ. And then he says this, Colossians chapter 3, when we discover it will be worth it all. Colossians chapter 3, verse 4 again. When Christ, who is our life, appears that is a sentence of anticipation anticipation is it any wonder that the gospel is pictured in marriage how Jesus is called the bride and the church is called the bridegroom of Christ there's great anticipation when brides and bridegrooms are finally united in marriage. And I know I've mentioned this before, but I'll never forget the day when I was standing in the front of the church and there's a long aisle going down the room and at the other end of the room, there were doors. They were closed and the doors opened and my bride came through the doors. My life appeared that day. In one real sense, my life is wrapped up now in my wife that I'm married to. And that picture should be an illustration of my spiritual reality, the life I'm wrapped up in with my bride, with my groom as the bride of Christ. So he has this sense of anticipation about when it will be worth it. Yes, it costs nothing to be saved, but it costs everything to live like it. When will it be worth it? Listen to this. When Christ, who is our life, appear, then you also will appear with him in glory. It's hard to grasp all that that means, isn't it? We will appear with him in glory. Let me give you two passages to consider here. 
First of all, when we think about heaven, more than what it's going to be like, the Bible describes who we're going to be with, and that's Jesus. And as he is preparing to leave the planet, he's giving his disciples final instructions, and he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. That's the take-home part right there. Where I am, there you'll be also. And then in John chapter 17, just a few verses later, Jesus prays this. That was spoken to the disciples. This is prayed about the disciples. He says this in John chapter 17. Excuse me, went a little too far in my text. Let me read this as we anticipate appearing with Jesus in glory. John 17, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, that your son may also glorify you. Verse four, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The glory we're gonna be experiencing is the glory that is possible because Jesus died and rose again to bring his Father glory and the glory he also will receive. Now I'm moving down in John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, those disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through the word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Now, while Jesus in John 14 says he goes to prepare a place for us that where he is there, we may be also. We know that the glory will be about being a part of who he is and experiencing the blessings of what he's done. But we also see a vivid illustration of his glory revealed to the world, to people. This is in Revelation chapter 19. And I think this is hinted at there in our text in Colossians chapter two, when Christ, who is our life, appears. Appears to whom? Well, we will already be in his presence. When Christ, who is our life, appears to the world. Listen to Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful, and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. You start talking about a glorious appearing. There is a horse. The rider is called faithful and true. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Remember what Jesus said when he was praying? I've finished the work that you have done. The work was the dipping in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Verse 14 of Revelation 19. 
So here's this horse. Here is God the Son on the horse with the crowns and authority that comes with it. Verse 14, And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Therefore, when Christ, who is our life, appears, we also will appear with him in glory. Hey, is it worth it? Is it worth it being a Jesus follower? Yes. The armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Who are we following? Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God, of Almighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Christ, who is our life, appears, we will appear with him in glory. So, seek those things which are above. Set your mind, not on things of this world, but where Christ is. For your life is hidden with Christ in God. When something is hidden, you don't see it right now. And Paul is telling the church in Colossae, you may not see it all right now. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. But when Christ, who is your life, appears, then... If you're looking for something that's hidden here, you're never going to find it. If you're looking for your life right here, right now, as a Jesus follower, you're seeking the wrong kingdom in the wrong place. But if you seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, it will be worth all of it. He reminds us of it. He gives us the responsibility. He shows us the resource. He tells us why we're to do it because our life is with Christ. And then he tells, it, tells us that it will be worth it. When? At the revelation of Jesus. Let's pray. Glory, it will be glory that day. Glory for me. Glory for every Jesus follower. As in, in some remarkable, unfathomable way, you, God, have decided to share the glory of your Son with us. What else is there to seek? What else is there to set our mind on that is superior to that truth? Please forgive us for all the times we think that there is something better than who Jesus is and what he's done, and who we are in him. Amen. Have a great day.